And until you raise public awareness and create a significant groundswell of change, I don't think governments or big industries move. We are not going to be able to make big system change unless we disrupt the system. And the system does not want to be disrupted. There's so much opportunity to manipulate science and to manipulate arguments and to kind of twist the data that diverts from the real conversation. The impetus for change is both the environmental and the health conversations that we talked about. And I think we have to have this conversation, but having it without the solution is unproductive because it just gets people depressed. So it's pairing up the, the hard conversation with the positive and exciting conversation about the possibility of what we could do in the future. And we truly create a powerful message. Hey peeps, in this episode, you will hear from Irina Gary from Change Foods. Change Foods uses precision fermentation to create real dairy without the cow. More about that in a few minutes. Prior to that, she has had several positions, one of them being senior brand manager in plant-based innovation at Danone. We discuss the role of talking about health benefits of alternative proteins and how critical it is to actually point out the problems of the existing industry to drive change. I love that Irina disagrees with some of the previous interview guests that we have had on during this season. I appreciate her boldness in standing up for what she believes in. This was such a great interview, it was really hard to cut because it hits many of the most interesting topics, activism, science manipulation and industry lobbying. So let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to season three on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now and sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Irina, it's... Lovely to be able to talk to you on Red to Green. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, that, that was so spontaneous because we literally just had a call last week and we we're just talking about the industry and uh, I was like, oh, wait a minute, we need to squeeze this in. <laughs> <laughs> It's a fantastic <laughs> season. I've been listening to all the episodes and I, I really enjoy the breadth of topics. Thank you. Yeah. And you, you also told me before we started recording that you had this observation regarding our interview guest. So it is quite confusing, right? Because it's not a topic where we can get a final answer on. And that's actually part of what we want to achieve with this to just make people think from different perspectives, right? Right. And when you think about where we are right now in this food system, we are at the beginning of a massive transition, right? And a lot of your guests talk about this, that in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to go through this revolution in our food system. And when you look in the past, revolutions like that happened, right? We transitioned in the industrial revolution. We went from burning coal to having light bulbs in our houses. And in retrospect, it looks like it happened overnight. You know, we didn't have electricity and then we did, right? We didn't have bicycles and then we did. But in reality, they were years in the process where these things were occurring and there was debate and there was disagreement. And I think we're just at the beginning of that. Yeah, totally. And I love the idea of looking at the past to be able to draw some conclusions on what's going to happen. I do believe that history can teach us a lot. And I love that you bring up the example of electricity, because obviously, nowadays, we all think electricity is 
fantastic. Like who wouldn't want electricity? But then when it was introduced, people were so scared of it. Like a lot of people did not trust it because they were heating up their ovens with wood or with coal. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there's this invincible thing that's supposed to power my life. (laughs) How, How is that possible, right? And you seem to also be interested in these uh, kind of historical case studies. Do you have one to share with us that could give us some insight on the cultured meat space also? Or actually not cultured meat, cellular agriculture space, just to (laughs) broaden. Right. Well, I think what helps me when I put things in perspective is that humans do not like change as species, right? We resist change and we would almost rather default to what we know. Even when first scientists suggested that Earth may not have been flat and it was round, you know, they were prosecuted. And I feel like what we're experiencing now is this conversation about the need to change our food system is highly polarizing. We're in our bubble, you know, when we talk to entrepreneurs and scientists and people in our space, we're all in this great agreement of of how wonderful things will be when cellular agriculture comes on the scene. And I think we're just now starting to bump out out of our bubble occasionally into the real world. And we're met with a great degree of resistance. And I don't think this resistance is grounded in deep research, right? It's grounded in the fact that like you're telling me to do something vastly different to something that's deeply personal. And I think that's just a scary thing. In our previous talk, we discussed a bit the difference between the precision fermentation space and the cultured meat space. Mm. So for listeners who have not listened to our previous episodes, definitely check them out. But precision fermentation is one kind of technology compared to tissue engineering, which is used for cultured meat. Precision fermentation is used to do, for example, cultured dairy, as you just um, described before. So how is the cultured dairy space different from the cultured meat space in terms of how the industry is collaborating and working together to go out and have a coherent messaging and a coherent way of talking about these things? Well, this is all new, right? And I think the way GFI, or Good Food Institute, framed the industry structure, I think was really helpful. We are all this kind of a three-pillar house, so to speak, right? There's plant-based, there's cell-based, and then there's fermentation-based. And I thought that was a really helpful structure. And so just to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, cellular agriculture is producing the actual cells, right? So you're essentially using nature's machinery to multiply the exact cells. So what you get at the end of the process is the exact chicken cells or the exact beef cells. Fermentation pillar is interesting because there's almost like two different subcategories within that. There's biomass fermentation and there's precision fermentation. So let's geek out for a second. Biomass is when you're taking microorganisms. So it could be yeast, could be fungi, and you are culturing those microorganisms, so fermenting them kind of like beer, and you're using the entire body of, of what you've cultured, right? So it, if it's a mycelium, you could look at, you know, at last food, they're making bacon, but they're essentially kind of growing this fruiting body of a fungi or, you know, a mushroom type uh, of an organism, and they're cutting kind of whole steaks out of it. And precision fermentation is very unique because yes, we're using microorganisms like yeast, but we're actually encoding them with a particular DNA sequence to make a compound of interest. So for example, in our case, it could be a casein protein, which is a milk protein. You take the code from the database that codes for that exact protein, 
and then you're using the microorganism as a machinery to make this protein during the fermentation process. So both are going through fermentation, but at the end, biomass uses the entire fermentation solution. Precision filters out the just the protein or the compound that is of interest and then uses that as an ingredient in food. And so we have kind of three big pillars with two sub-pillars and how we describe technology, how we name this technology, I think is absolutely critical in order for people to understand it and not be afraid of it. And so on the communication front, cell-based meat companies have been talking and collaborating on what do we call this? There was evolution. Is it clean meat? Is it cell cultured meat? Is it cultivated meat? What is it? And then precision fermentation is actually a little bit earlier in the process where we've just started having these conversations and saying, okay, what makes sense for technology description? What doesn't make sense? How do we create these? I think about this kind of like swim lanes for communication because while we want to be clear and we want to explain our technology, we also want to differentiate it for both from animal-based foods as well as cell-based foods as well as plant-based foods. And so I think by us coming together first within our little pillars and then coming together as a broader community and aligning to some of that terminology and the way we talk about our technology will ultimately create a more streamlined way of talking about it and will ultimately lead to greater adoption. Yeah. And I'm wondering how much you think that the topic of consumer acceptance is actually something you worry about. I'm, I'm oscillating between, oh, this is going to be fine. And oh, God, this is a Titanic and I can see it running into an iceberg. It's not about nobody's going to eat that, right? Obviously, there will be people eating that. My fear is more that it gets a bad reputation. And as we've seen with GMOs, Once people make up their mind about things, it really sticks. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's a completely different situation compared to GMOs. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking about how quick people make up their mind, even if they don't know about a topic much. Yes. Many people have a very strong opinion about GMOs without having looked into it. Yes. In the same way, this field can fall into the trap of some flashy news and people thinking, oh, this is fake meat, this is synthetic meat, and I, this is not for me, this is like the shitty version. And so how do you see that? How concerned are you about these things? I am concerned for this precise reason, because people are busy. They're not spending their days reading scientific papers, right? They're not digging into these topics. And as you said, it is, you know, the first, maybe not the only one-time first impression, but it's the first handful of impressions. And that's where I thought cell-based meat really got hurt by showing up as lab food, you know, by showing scientists and petri dishes and tiny steak. And the media, unfortunately, runs with the most clickable headline. And the most clickable headline is lab-grown meat, right? Or fake meat, because that's what gets people excited. And unfortunately, I think we missed the opportunity to, and I don't know if we could have controlled it really, but we missed the opportunity to put something forward that was preferred. And so while the industry was debating and arguing, is it cultivated? Is it cultured? Is it something else? The media was running away with, with lab grown and fake. And I think it's stuck, right? And so now we all of a sudden have an issue where we need to overcome the lab grown thing. And I think it is important. And the first impressions matter. And because people don't dig into it, 
language matters. I think what you call it is absolutely critical because, again, most people don't even read the rest of the article. They read the headline, right? If Bill Gates tweets that we should eat fake meat, that's what they hear. That is it. They don't read the rest of his rationale and reasoning and whatever. And there's this immediate visceral reaction and it becomes incredibly hard to overcome. I mean, I have friends who are plant-based and when we get together and, you know, literally last night they were shopping at the store before coming over to my house. They're like, yeah, which which brand of fake meat should we pick up? And I'm like, it's plant-based. It's not fake. And it's really, really hard. And I think that's why for me kind of having this conversation about nomenclature and what do we call it? Let's all get on the same page. Let's try to get media on the same page. Uh, Let's try to get each other and stop arguing with each other is absolutely critical. I think those first impressions could either hinder or propel this technology. Interestingly, I had a call and an interview with Scott from GFI who focuses on legislature in the Mm. US. And I was surprised that he was saying, actually, he doesn't see corporate lobbying being such an issue because the organizations who are against cultured meat or cellular agriculture and who push forward the legislation against these products are, for example, the cattleman's industry. And I'm thinking, yes, at the same time, the corporations are connected to the cattleman's associations. I think so. And they could be still working against these products, even though they see that this might be the future. And as an example, we see the parallel in plastics. I was very happy for when you told me, yes, like you also don't believe in the recycling greenwashing, because in the plastics industry, a lot of the corporations would invest in these grand recycling schemes and look, we have these sustainability projects and at the same time lobby against any progress on that front. And there's Mm -hmm. a fantastic report called Talking Trash that clarifies exactly this, that corporations can be extremely two-sided. They can be outside super excited and we are doing this and look at us and da-da-da and we're investing in food companies of the future. And because corporations are just this large bubble of lots of people, there are people inside the corporation who do not support that and who are actually going against that at the same time. So I would love to hear your opinion on how much do you think are the corporations like Tyson and Cargill, how much are they already on the alt protein side, specifically for the cellular agriculture and precision fermentation space? And how much do you think this is still going to be a bit of a battle? Now, I think we need to separate a little bit in our minds the industry as kind of this amorphous body from individual companies. And, you know, you have Jack Bobo, right, who said, like, we shouldn't bash animal agriculture because that's going to cause a backlash and lobbying and whatever. And I think to an extent, it is true uh, that as an industry, this body of companies or these representations, whether it's cannibals associations or meat and dairy associations, they do have very strong interest in protecting their current business, right? It's a massive business. There's a lot of systems and there's a lot of money involved. So as a system, I think there's a lot of pressure to defend and protect and maintain status quo. And you've seen this with oil and gas. When large oil and gas corporations would lobby against climate regulation, would continue to push for subsidies, etc. But at the same time, I think realizing that the world is shifting and changing and they do need to potentially move the needle. Now, 
I think a lot of the, the largest players with the most entrenched interest are probably doing it more as risk mitigation rather than, hey, we want to go and disrupt ourselves. It's, it's quite rare to see an organization that will say, yes, we're going to sunset our highly profitable, massive business. Almost nobody ever does that, right? And you never see the big meat and dairy companies saying, look, we are actively going to reduce our size of business. What they are doing is they are investing a little bit in alternative technologies. Maybe they're launching some brands. You see JBS launched Ozo Burger as their plant-based option. But by no means are they actively going and disrupting themselves. They're just risk mitigating for a disruption that's coming. And I think that's why you have to separate the bigger industry interests from individual companies and then from people within the companies and more so people within the system because they all have different interests and they all have different views on this. But to bring it full circle, I think the disruption is coming. And I think everybody, including the biggest producers, are seeing that. However, I do think that the interests are so heavily aligned to maintaining the system as is. And again, we've seen this play out. We've seen this with energy transition. We've seen this with tobacco for crying out loud, right? How many decades did it take of denying science and finding doctors to say things that smoking wasn't bad for you and promoting the industry until it was finally so clear and regulated out, right? We're seeing that now with oil and gas, with Shell yesterday being told to cut their emissions. Some of it is too big, too important, too entrenched for the system to regulate itself out of existence. Mm, yeah, I'm also intensely passionate about, about nutrition science. And I think we're both well aware how extremely complex the topic is. And fascinatingly, a lot of people believe that there's absolutely no real consensus on what is good nutrition, because it's so confusing, right? And this confusion is fabricated. It's not a coincidence yes. and we've been talking about actually the dairy council when the dairy council and i can link to that um, in the show notes when the dairy council found their products being threatened by consumers becoming more critical of dairy they issued an internal report which was later leaked which is saying that their goal is not to convince people that dairy is super healthy. The goal is just to create confusion because if they create confusion, people just stick to yes. what they're already doing. So it, it's like a whole field looking into how science can be manipulated and how science communication can be used to just make people freaking confused about things. And I would love to hear your opinion on what you think the industry should do to counteract such confusion and the consumers as soon as there will be funded, probably industry yes. funded um, studies. I mean, I just saw somebody just put a study in front of me saying that high meat consumption is good for reducing cancer. What? Right? Nutrition science is incredibly complex. Science in general, the scientific process is designed in a way where you push these different ideas and you do the studies and some studies show, uh, you know, this effect and other studies disprove it. And I think the consensus is reached over time with majority of people kind of agreeing, right? You've seen this with climate science. Climate science is not new. There were scientists 40 years ago talking about fossil fuels and emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. And yet 
It's taking decades for us to start building consensus. And even today, still, there are studies that will disprove it. There are scientists that go against it. And what I think is very hard, and, and we're going to live through this with nutrition science as well, is that, the again, the entrenched interest of the industry is motivating people to fund, push, and message confusion, right? And I agree with you. I think we've seen this with climate science and we are seeing this with nutrition science. I think what we have to do is look at the body of evidence. And what I think the confusion that people see is that we tend to want to cling to like the one study. We want the silver bullet. We want the one ingredient to do it all. And the reality is that it's not going to. And the industry is leveraging that to see doubt, see confusion. And as you said, very rightfully so, the result of confusion is inaction. And that is the most dangerous thing for us. And it's the most beneficial thing for the incumbent industry, because if people keep doing what they're doing, there's no change. I'll give you an example. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, we were all obsessed with low fat. Low fat was the thing. And then now we're all look at it. Like, that was dumb, right? That, that didn't get us anywhere. We didn't get any healthier. In fact, we got worse off. So I think the messaging actually needs to be simpler rather than more complex. So actually, I think that simplifying and speaking about where does the overall consensus sit with scientists, with nutritionists is more productive than trying to put this study versus that study and debating the methodology and who paid for it. Because I tell you, I've engaged in these conversations quite a bit. And it's almost impossible to convince somebody on a study by study basis, because for each study, somebody can show you a different study. And there's so much opportunity to manipulate science and to manipulate arguments and to kind of twist the data that I've seen that diverts from the real conversation. I see this as an opportunity to simplify, clarify, use big picture kind of ways of explaining to people. Otherwise, we, we get stuck in the, in the weeds and we never make progress. Okay, so the interesting thing is that health as a benefit for products in the alternative protein space seems to be quite an effective way of making people open up to the idea of eating that. It's mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, it is not bad for me. If we argue based on health and we actually say, well, it does have less saturated fat than the conventional mm -hmm. meat and it doesn't have antibiotics, etc., it shifts people's perspective from, oh, this is something made in a lab which would be harmful to me to what? This could actually be a better alternative. But at, at the same time, while arguing with health benefits, it's important to stay in the context of this isn't a health food because that sets the stage for all sorts of health gurus to come in and say, ah, oh, this is evil and don't mm -hmm. eat this, etc. And so that is what I'm, I'm getting from what you're talking about, right? Right, right. I agree with you completely. I think a conversation about overall health should be separated from conversation from individual foods when we talk about individual foods. Again, if we could frame it up in a broader picture of if you eat predominantly whole plants, but then you should have the kind of license to go and eat foods that are for pleasure, that are for culture, that are for tradition. But when you do eat those foods, there are better versions of those foods. That's kind of how I think of it is a plant-based burger is undeniably better from a sustainability perspective than the meat, the traditional animal-based 
burger, right? Same with plant-based milks, etc. I, I don't think anybody could reasonably argue with that. When you talk about health and you put it in this broader context, is it better than the beef burger? It gets to be kind of tricky on a like-for-like basis. But again, I think to me, the conversation becomes, well, it does have less cholesterol. It doesn't have the hormones. It doesn't have the antibiotics. So it is a better version. I think that the thing we're missing in talking about cellular agriculture and is the possibility for it to actually be better, where I think in a few years, we can move away from comparing uh, cell cultured steak from beef steak, because we can now say, okay, let's remove some of the negatives like cholesterol and, and high saturated fats. But why do we stop there? Why can't we put it and, and make it beneficial, right? Why can't we address some nutrient deficiencies or add functional ingredients to where this piece of meat is no longer just delicious and high protein, but it's also maybe high in fiber. And maybe it has a high vitamin D or something else that's a nutrient of interest and actually push out of the frame of what we used to do and what we could get with animal ingredients and and actually open up both the nutrition possibilities, but also the taste and product experience possibilities. And I think it will take some time. You have to start in the familiar. So when you're creating, let's say, animal-free cheese, it makes sense to start in something that is familiar, like a mozzarella or a cheddar. But who is to say we have to stop there? And I think we're missing that a little bit of generating excitement around the possibilities of the future of food to be more sustainable, healthier, and actually more beneficial for people. And that is what gets me excited beyond just taking out the negatives. It's, it's adding the positive. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. To circle back to the health topic quickly, mm. I think one important stakeholder group are the bloggers, the influencers, the mm -hmm. foodies out there who will absolutely take a stance on this for better or worse. And I'm thinking that this is an audience that could be so beneficial if the community is built around them and with them and if they are actually on the side of the future in a way mm -hmm, of the side mm -hmm. of on the side of the alternative protein space have you thought in any way of if it would make sense to do a outreach strategy focused on them and how to incorporate these like health influences because nowadays like everybody and their mom are health influencers on 100%. instagram and stuff like that right yeah no i think they're important the one thing i wrestle with at the moment is today the world of media is driven by this click system right where what gets clicked on is what gets talked about and is what gets traction and becomes part of culture. And I think this conversation of health and science and studies is really not click worthy most of the time, right? And that's why you're saying like eat whole eat whole plants and not too much is really not a clickbait thing. And so that's why this conversation we're not having it. And so it's a question of how do we present information in an exciting way. And in a way it's like rigging the system. Right. I think we have to rig the system in order to make it exciting. Either you need to r drive with this exciting possibilities, but also how do you deliver the messages around health? And people get excited about news. People get excited about possibilities. They also get outraged and, and mad by the damages we're doing to the planet. And so it's how do you operate within the extremes as a communicator? Because I feel like messages that fall down the middle are not effective in the sense that they don't get clicks. So how do you leverage 
the clickbaitiness of our current media environment, and bloggers are a part of that, to deliver your message and to create excitement and to move the needle in the right direction while still being true and not creating the new hype. And I think that's that's the balance that I personally am thinking about and, and trying to wrestle with is, is how do we do that? How do we get people excited about the possibility of what the future of food could be? How do we talk about kind of the, the hard topics, right? The dangers of food system that we have and the damages that it's doing to our planet. That's a hefty conversation. We have to have it. So how do we do that in conjunction? Because to me, it's about putting the two together. Again, it's explaining to people the why. Why do we need to change? And to me, the impetus for change is both the environmental and the health conversations that we talked about. And I think we have to have this conversation, but having it without the solution is unproductive because it just gets people depressed. So it's pairing up the, the hard conversation about sustainability and health with the positive and exciting conversation about the possibility of what we could do in the future, how we could be more sustainable, how we could be healthier, how we could be exciting to, to consumers to say, yeah, I want to welcome this in my life because it's solving a problem and it's delicious. And I think when we combine the two is when we truly create a powerful message. Yeah. At the same time, we also have, we are in a bubble in a way, and it's yes. hard to overlook that a lot of people do not believe that beef is bad for the environment. Yes. And a lot of people don't believe that meat and dairy are not inherently good or like, you know, not, not the best thing mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. eat. So we are also bumping up against these massive thought structures, which just do not fit with the new information, like the belief system, the belief mm -hmm. structure is this harsh, harsh shell and messages that are trying to convince people based on health and environment may just just bump up against it and be reflected right back to it. But that's why I think, and again, I, that might be where I disagree with some of your other guests, is that this idea of just being a nice alternative and not addressing the issues with animal agriculture and not poking holes in that kind of frame that people have today that meat and dairy are great for the environment and are great for you. I don't think we can create the level of change that we need to create without having that conversation. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's unpopular. It attracts criticism and it attracts, you know, the beef trolls, so to speak, and, and coming and critiquing things and trying to twist the arguments. But I think we have to have it. I don't think we could move past a niche space unless we kind of open up the greater public consciousness on what is the way we do food today doing to our planet and to our health. And so I think we need, to, we need to do it. I don't see a way around it, both as just a human who understands and sees the impact. I think we have a moral obligation, in a sense, to start bringing these truths to life. And I also think as an industry, we are not going to break out of a tiny niche bubble unless we start talking about the reasons for change. When we're just another option, why would somebody bother? And I think that's an important thing. I think it's an important message to have these conversations, being brave and, and not being afraid to be attacked or critiqued or whatever, right? So I think the science and, and the truth is, is kind of fairly clear. And so bringing that message out to public is important. But again, to me, it's, it's pairing it up with 
what is the alternative? What is the option? If you tell me I shouldn't do this, then what should I do that's better in a way that doesn't feel like a massive sacrifice or a change? One of Jack Bobo's tenants for his opinion on that is that people do not want to be shown that they are wrong. So telling them animal agriculture is bad and it's bad for your health, it's bad for the environment, pretty much gives people the impression like, oh, you know, I've been doing things wrong and you're trying to tell tell me that I'm mm -hmm. bad or that I did bad things. And that creates this resistance that makes yes. them incapable of then actually opening up to an alternative. Yes, I don't disagree with it. Um, I think it is true when you're when you're only messaging the negative, it's a hard message. And it's a hard message, especially when people on the receiving end either feel guilted by the message, as in they're do it's their doing, or powerless to change. I'll give you an example on fossil fuels, right? We've all heard that fossil fuels are bad. And in a sense, we feel guilted because our homes are heated with fossil fuels and our cars are driven with fossil fuels. And we at the same time feel powerless to change because I don't choose how my home is heated. It is a per, it's a utility that comes to my house. I, for the most part, do not choose how the transportation sector is fueled because if I need to take a flight, I don't have an option, right? It's going to have fossil fuels. And so it is both kind of guilty, shameful, and also not empowering. And I think we have an opportunity with food specifically to change the narrative. And so I think the way we talk about it is really important where we should not blame the individual people for choices they make. And we should also message that they can make a big difference with their food choices and they don't have to be perfect. Um, and, and celebrating the small wins and the small changes that they make in their, in their, in their diet in, in a genuine way, I think is really important. Okay, that's really good. Irina, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on something that you disagree with or that you have a different perspective on because you said you've been listening to the podcast and I would be very interested to hear if there's anything else you would like to comment on. Mm. I think one thing that one of the podcasts that you had or a couple of them kind of seeded the same idea of not getting people uncomfortable. Hey, don't argue, don't kind of critique meat and dairy because that's going to make people uncomfortable and come after you or make them feel guilty and not want to engage a conversation. And then you had a couple of folks talking about kind of this conspiratorial thinking and how when you introduce new technology, you're likely to have people that will see the world in a very different way and come after you. And I think both of those potentially kind of see this idea that you want to find a way to be agreeable. And I actually think the opposite is that the, the disagreement and the debate, A, is to be expected. When you're going through a massive change, there will be people who will be critics and they will come after you. And I think it's just par for the course. If you want to be a part of the revolution, expect pushback. So that's one. And the other one is, I think by engaging in these hotter topics, we sometimes forget that for every person who vehemently disagrees with us, there are people who actually really agree with us. And sometimes the disagreement comes out louder in social media than agreement. For example, when we talk about climate change, there's a lot of people that will come after you, right, and debate you on social media. But if you look at the data, over half of U.S. population are either alarmed or greatly concerned about climate change. So even though I might get into hot water and a debate with certain folks in the population, I will also be speaking 
truth and something that's highly relevant and emotionally resonant with the other half. And it doesn't even have to be half, right? You could be speaking to a 10, 20% of population, but when you're speaking to them, I think it's, it's important to realize that it's important to be resonant. And when you're resonant and you're emotionally relevant, it's more important than being agreeable to everyone else. And so I think that's where I maybe align more with what Nikki said, where controversy is good. And I don't think of it as controversy for the sake of controversy. I think of it as anytime you're doing something that's changing the world, there will be controversy and you should embrace it. And you really should focus on the fact that you are going to resonate with a group of people who will really appreciate and love what you're doing. And that's where you should be focused instead of worrying about what the opposition is going to say. Mm, yeah. So to get to the ending questions, Irina, if you would have 50 million, and what businesses would you invest it in if you cannot invest it in Change Foods? There's two things I think I would invest in. One is in the education and the connection campaign between food and health and ecosystems. We all talk about it and we all know about it, but I feel like the awareness is incredibly low. So if I had some money, I would love to design our, just a media campaign around how we connect the dots for people. And then the other one is when you connect the dots, you need to give people choices that they can make feasibly. And the biggest gap I see in giving people kind of healthy, nutritious food accessibly is think of it as a McDonald's of plant-based foods or the McDonald's of sustainable food is, you know, quick service restaurant chain that serves food that is nutritious and delicious and sustainable. And I think there's a handful of companies that are out there starting to build it. And if I had 50 million, I'd probably put a chunk towards starting another one of those. Yay. What is another controversial and unusual opinion that you hold regarding food, sustainability, or agriculture? So it goes to maybe where we started on the approaches of how we bring this new food to people. And they want to talk about the experience. They want to talk about it, how what it's doing in the world and how it tastes and how they're going to share it with their friends and, and have a great evening. And so for me, food is much more tactile and emotional. I think there's a lot of folks who love the fact that this is technology, right? That this is new and this is so cool. And we have the opportunity for this technology to solve some of our problems. And there are brands and companies that are kind of taking the technology way in where they're saying, look, we want to talk about technology. We want to lead with how we made this and talk about and explain the, the process behind our food. And, and they're really leaning in on this. I personally feel that when it comes to food, people do not want to talk about technology and much less scientific. And so I take a very different approach to communicating this future food is leading with food and leading with taste and leading with experience rather than leading with technology. And the technology should still be there and it's the backbone of what it is, but it's not the main message. And I think it's okay to disagree. And, and that's where we started the conversation of this is new. And I think it's good to have multiple approaches because for some technology might work for others it won't work and so leading with these different ways in i think it's really important but i would say that's where i draw the differences i'm very much in the camp of food is food and the technology is not why we choose to eat food there's another controversial opinion that we touched upon which um, is your view on regenerative agriculture and i mean 
we 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 won't get get deeply into this, but I think it's fair to say, and maybe it isn't even controversial, that regenerative agriculture is being used by certain parties, for example, by people who actually want to promote animal agriculture to to say, well, beef is not the problem, beef is our solution. And that's that's a messaging that can easily be looked up in lots of Facebook posts and lots of LinkedIn posts and lots of videos online. I agree. I think it's it's highly effective is why it's being used, because it gives people the justification to keep doing what you're doing. Because if beef could be produced regeneratively, it gives people the license to consume beef even though the could be doesn't necessarily line up to what is. And I do think it's a, it's a PR tactic, essentially, because I've, I've tried digging into this and asking, you know, how many of these farms even exist? And I think it's a handful in the world, and they're being used as, you know, case point examples that play really well with people to say, oh, but it here, look at these farmers, you know, they're treating their animals well, and they have all these land that couldn't be used for crops, and they're rotating them, and, you know, they're sequestering carbon. And there's truth in that. It's just the scale is so tiny that on the whole, I think that it, it is not truly a solution at the scale of the problem, much like recycling, where, yes, plastic can be recycled, but only 7% of that plastic actually is. And what is happening is we are producing more and more plastic and less and less of that is getting recycled. And yet we've lulled consumers to sleep with the idea that it could be recycled. And I think we're, we're being kind of spun the same story now with that meat and dairy could be produced in a way that is kind and sustainable. While in reality, the, the, the truth is that 90 plus percent of it is not and probably could never be scaled to that. And so I think that, again, is is one of those uncomfortable conversations that people don't like having, is that if we want to have a sustainable food system, there is just no way for all of us to keep eating as much animal food as we eat today. It's just not feasible. And that's an uncomfortable conversation. Mm. Yeah, and I love these connections between different industries. So in the plastic alternative space it's also the example of all these articles that state oh this new invention of mycelium or bacteria or mealworms eating plastic could save our planet and then you look into it and it's this like tiny itsy bitsy small research project where they ate like two bottles of plastic and even if it's a bit larger you look into it and like several years later, nothing has been picked up, nothing has been uh, scaled. And part of it is also just the economics that just don't work out for these kinds of projects. But it gives the this tiny spark of hope that, oh, maybe we can just find the solution and all of our plastic in this world will be eaten by these mealworms. <laughs> you know? But that's that's what I'm saying is people... If you, if you start with the premise that people want to keep doing what they're doing, that's just how we are as species. You mentioned something before and that triggered uh, another analogy in my head. So we talked briefly about the fossil fuel industry and the renewable energy space. And let's draw a little comparison. Let's imagine that the renewable energy space would have not said that fossil fuels are bad, but we're just doing something that is even better. 
than the existing solution. I'm just I'm just thinking about would that would that have been enough? Would that have spurred the investment also from government side into this, like into to the point that renewable energy has become on par with fossil fuel energy. And maybe when we think about the messaging, we need to additionally consider the governments as another stakeholder, because when we drive this awareness, then we can also drive more government or public funding towards this. I think it's really hard to do that. And here's why. If you if you're willing to skip the 10 to 20 year period where that technology does become undeniably better. Let's talk about solar. Solar as a technology has been around for a couple of decades. I believe it was discovered in the 40s. And it was fought against very actively by fossil fuel companies, both publicly and through legislation and um, donations and government subsidies, right? To convince somebody, think about 10 years ago, that solar is just better. It's just another alternative. No problem with fossil fuels. It's just better. Well, it was not yet scaled and it was highly expensive and required a lot of investment. That's a hard argument to make. If there's no problem with oil and gas, why would I go to solar when it's expensive? Fast forward 10, 20 years. Today, finally, I think last year, renewable energy broke through those pricing barriers. And now the story is, okay, now it is cheaper, right? And now it is better. But it's taking a decade or two for that to happen with great degree of resistance. And I think that we cannot apply the same leap of logic or leap of faith right now to these um, cell culture um foods and novel foods, because again, we are going to go through a decade of where it's not really yet quite accessible. It's not really price parity. And it's really hard to make an argument to say, oh, I'm going to give you a cell cultured steak that's going to be cheaper than your beef steak. Not tomorrow, 10, 20 years from now, quite possibly, but not today. And so what I think is hard is, is to allow this technology to grow, to mature, to reach those price points you need government subsidies, you need research support, you need to build scale, you need to build infrastructure. Animal agriculture has been optimizing their production for decades, right? It's, it, they've squeezed every bit of efficiency out of it and there's a great degree of government subsidies and regulations that are favorable to that industry. So to stand up a new industry and say, oh, we're just, it's gonna stand on its merit today. I think it's taking too big of a leap and, and expecting a bit too much. And so I think the way we do that is by creating awareness of what's not working today and why, creating policy to address some of the fundamental issues and start taxing for externalities on, on th- those industries that are polluting and are not sustainable, and also creating large programs of support in order to build scale for these industries because no one startup, no matter how passionate they are, can build an entire industry on their own. It's going to take time. And so I think it's a fallacy for us to think that, oh, we'll just we'll just be better and everybody will see it. There is there's a decade of process that has to take place for it to yeah. happen. I love this 
that we got into this uh, because Jacob Obo's arguments are based on let's not offend the corporations because if we don't offend them, then they will not lobby against it as much, right? And that is an, an assumption that they won't lobby against it. And I think there's a high chance that they will do it anyway. And the other stakeholder group that we have now looked into are the governments, like the public funding, which is so important to get this off the ground because receiving the majority of funding from private companies and corporations will make the industry inherently too dependent on them and may create its own challenges if, if suddenly the corporations are the ones that have um, a major stake in the new industry that is disrupting them, that may be counterproductive. Yeah. I mean, if you look at history of these big evolutions, right, these big revolutions in our society, whether it was transition from coal to electricity, there were people who were deeply offended, right, by, by that transition. When you look at fossil fuels, there were entrenched interests that were spending a lot of money burying climate science, keeping government regulations, preventing regulations, right, etc., putting laws that would prevent progress. We've seen this with transition away from lead in our gasoline. Decades of activism required to make progress. We've seen this with the opioid epidemic. Decades um, of activists calling on issues. And until you raise public awareness and create a significant groundswell of change. I don't think governments or big industries move because ultimately they're entrenched to protect the interest. And so I think in food, it's very similar. We are not going to be able to make big system change unless we disrupt the system. And the system does not want to be disrupted. And the governments and the representatives will not move in a sustainable direction unless they're starting to hear from their constituents, unless they're starting to see big change. And so I think it's both creating these new businesses and opportunities and investment options and, and people do need to make money on this, right? Like, let's not be idealistic and pretend like we will all just, you know, be driven by mission. We need to create viable businesses for this to work. But we also need to raise public awareness and we do need to create government pressure to change these systems because without that, the progress will just take too long. Well, thank you so much for your perspectives on that. How can listeners reach out to you? I am more than happy to connect on LinkedIn. That's where I would say is probably the easiest way to reach out to me. So happy to hear from folks there. Thank you, Irina, for being on Red to Green. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. And it's made possible by a dedicated, smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.